0: The crux of the JFK assassination rests on one question. Was Lee Harvey Oswald an assassin? Or was he a patsy? A victim? The answer is the key to everything. If we knew the answer, it would help us understand why Kennedy was killed, and if not by Oswald, then by whom. You're listening to Conspiracy, Season 1, JFK. What will you believe? You can find documents and research items for Conspiracy on auroraborisinc.com. That's O-U-R-O-B-O-R-O-S-I-N-K dot com. And if you enjoy Conspiracy, please leave the show a 5-star rating wherever you get your podcasts. It's the best way to show your support, and it helps the show. There's been a break since the last episode, and I want to thank all of you for sticking around. I actually ended up having surgery on my spine, and I had two surgeries in two weeks. So I've needed this time off to kind of recuperate, recover, and get right back into things. So here we are. To understand the mystery of Oswald on the day of the assassination, I find it important to start at the Book Depository. History now claims this building as the epicenter for the assassination of JFK, and it places Oswald at a sixth-floor window with a gun in his hand. The Arbiter of Death. The Depository was a private company that acted as an agent for a number of book publishers. It provided warehousing, inventorying, and shipping. School systems would place orders with the publishers for textbooks, and the publishers would send the orders along to the Depository, where the order would be filled. On November 22, 1963, one of these order fillers was none other than Lee Harvey Oswald. Oswald and his wife, Marina, were separated at the time, and she was living in the suburban city of Irving, just west of Dallas, and she was staying with Michael and Ruth Payne, beginning in October of 63. Oswald had left for New Orleans in the spring of 63, and by September, it was decided that since Marina was about to have a baby, she would journey to Texas to live with the Payne's while Oswald continued his activities, which reportedly included a trip to Mexico City. The weekend starting on October the 12th, Oswald arrived in town to visit and decided to stay. During this weekend, Mrs. Payne said she gave Oswald, who had no driver's license, a driving lesson in her car, showing that Oswald would rely on others to travel around the area. On Monday, October 14th, Mrs. Payne drove Oswald to Dallas, where he rented a room at 1026 North Beckley Avenue from a Mrs. A.C. Johnson. For about $8 a week. Oswald then went on to fill out applications at the Texas Employment Commission because he was allegedly looking for work. That same day, Mrs. Payne mentioned Oswald and the fact that he needed work because his wife was about to have another baby to some neighbors, including Mrs. Linny May Randall. Mrs. Randall mentioned that Wesley Frazier, a younger brother who lived with her, worked at the Texas School Book Depository and that a job might be available there. Marina Oswald, who was present at this gathering, reportedly urged Mrs. Payne to check into the job possibility. Payne agreed and called the depository superintendent, Roy Truly, that same day. Oswald began working as temporary help the very next day. Truly said the fall was their busiest time of year and readily accepted another hired hand. This is the one area about Oswald that in my mind weighs heavily toward his guilt. If Oswald was a patsy, then the way he managed to get the job at the depository and in such short notice seems rather convenient for those plotting an assassination. In all the research I have done and in every book I have read so far, this is not something that's mentioned. I have some thoughts on the timeline and Oswald's involvement, but I'm holding this information close to the chest for now. But don't worry... All shall be revealed in good time. Oswald was paid a dollar twenty-five an hour to fill book orders, and once shown the procedures, he worked on his own. Truly, described Oswald as a bit above average as an employee, and coworkers said he was pleasant enough but kept mostly to himself. During his first week at work, Oswald befriended Wesley Frazier, the longer brother of Lenny Randall, and the neighbor to the Paines, and soon he asked Frazier to drive him to Irving to visit his family. Frazier was also new to the depository, and he would go on to state that he was eager to make friends, so he agreed to give Oswald the rides and would end up transporting Oswald every weekend prior to the assassination. On Sunday, November 17th, something weird occurred. Marina Oswald had Mrs. Payne call the number Oswald had given her, but Mrs. Payne was told no one by the name of Lee Oswald was staying there. The next day, Oswald called the Payne home, demanding no one call him there ever again. He told Marina that he was using a fictitious name at the Beckley Avenue address. Why Marina had Mrs. Payne call Oswald, I haven't been able to figure out. The Oswalds were clearly having marital issues, and this may have been a way to check in on Oswald to verify his whereabouts. Why Oswald would go to such covert means is fuzzy, at least on the surface. On Thursday morning, November 21st, Oswald reportedly asked Frazier to drive him to Irving after work because he wanted to get some curtain rods to put in his Beckley Avenue apartment. According to the now-dubbed curtain rod story, only Frazier and his sister ever claimed to have seen Oswald with the package, and their descriptions were inconsistent and vague. The next morning, Frazier's sister claimed she saw Oswald place a paper-wrapped package in Fraser's car, with Frazier noticing the package as the pair drove to work. When Fraser entered the building, he could not see Oswald and never knew what became of the package. Many researchers believe the curtain Rod story was concocted by authorities later, in an attempt to explain how Oswald got a rifle into the depository. Some researchers suspect Frazier, who could have been charged with being an accessory to the assassination, was susceptible to being coached by authorities. And more importantly, none of Oswald's other co-workers testified that they saw Oswald with any package. I find it hard to believe that Oswald could have entered the building going about his business without anyone catching a glimpse of the so-called curtain rod package. Witness testimony and investigations into the assassination clearly state that there was a shooter in a window on the depository's sixth floor. And... Oswald did in fact work on the sixth floor that day, leading investigators on where to point the guilty finger. And yet, despite the commission's conclusion that Oswald was the shooter, no one has unquestionably placed Oswald on the sixth floor at the time of the shooting. Dallas Police Chief Jesse Curry has even admitted, We don't have any proof that Oswald fired the rifle, and never did. Nobody has yet been able to put him in that building with a gun in his hand. After his arrest and during questioning, Oswald told Dallas police that at the time of the assassination, he was eating lunch on the first floor of the depository in what was called the Domino Room. And there's some evidence to back this up. An item of interest that complicates the narrative is the fact that the sixth floor was being renovated with new flooring, meaning that workers were coming and going with little to no oversight. Is it possible that someone other than Oswald could have managed to sneak in a rifle amongst the flooring equipment and floorboards? One of the depository workers lying plywood that day was Bonnie Williams. At about 11.55 a.m., his group of workers were rushing to lunch before the presidential motorcade arrived. This group took both elevators downstairs, but Oswald, who was also working on the sixth floor, did not go with them. Williams testified that Oswald hollered Guys, how about an elevator? Or words to that effect. Oswald then said, Close the gate on the elevator and send the elevator back up. So, at eleven fifty five AM, Oswald signaled his intention to go downstairs for lunch. No one testified to seeing him go downstairs, and in his testimony to the Warren Commission, Williams believed his co-workers planned to gather back on the sixth floor to watch the motorcade. So, he returned there with his lunch, which consisted of chicken, bread, and a bag of chips and a brown paper sack, along with a soft drink. According to Williams, he sat alone on some boxes near a window facing out onto Elm Street and ate his lunch. He said he saw no one else on the 6th floor, which happened to be one large open area, but he did note stacks of book cartons scattered around the area. Becoming impatient because no other workers had joined him, Williams discarded his lunch and left the 6th floor at approximately 12.20. The lunch remains would be found later, confirming that Williams had indeed eaten his lunch on the 6th floor. Now, if you remember... The presidential motorcade was running approximately five minutes late, so this would mean that there was no one in the sixth floor window at the time Kennedy should have arrived in the street below. This would mean that if Oswald had intended to kill Kennedy, he was not set up and ready when he should have been, expecting the president to arrive. According to an FBI report dated the 14th of January, 1964, Agents quoted Williams as saying he left the sixth floor after about three minutes. And yet, William denies ever saying this, and I have a hard time believing this FBI report. It is certainly possible to eat your lunch in just a few minutes, but under the circumstances, I have doubts that Williams was in a hurry. When the media learned about the chicken bones and lunch sack, they pounced on this information. It was portrayed to the public as proof that a cold and calculating assassin waited patiently, enjoying a meal before their target arrived. After finishing his meal, Williams hopped on to one of the elevators, and heading down, he saw two of his coworkers, Harold Norman and James Jr. Jarman, who were on the fifth floor, and he joined them to watch the motorcade. A photograph taken that day shows Williams and Norman as they lean out of the fifth floor window, directly below the famous six-floor sniper's window. Corroborating Williams' testimony. According to Norman's side of the story, he and Jarman had eaten lunch in the domino room, which is on the first floor, then they joined some other depository employees outside the front door. As the motorcade approached, they decided to take an elevator to the fifth floor, where they were joined by Williams at the southeast corner window a few moments later. In Captain Fritz's notes, Oswald said he ate lunch with some of the colored boys who worked with him. One of them was called Junior, and the other one was a little short man whose name he did not know. The Warren Commission would ask of Jarman, after his arrest, Oswald stated to a police officer that he had had lunch with you. Did you have lunch with him? Jarman replied, no sir, I didn't. The Commission would use what Jarman said to reject Oswald's alibi. One of the sources cited by the Warren Commission for Oswald's claim is CE1988, which is FBI agent James Bookout's report. Bookout was present when Fritz interviewed Oswald, and his report explicitly stated that Oswald told Fritz he was eating alone and had only seen Jr. walk through the lunchroom at that time. Thus, Oswald's alibi does not depend on his having eaten lunch with Jr but on the fact that he saw Jarman walk through the lunchroom while he was eating alone. And Oswald would have had no way of knowing that Jarman had been there if Oswald himself had not been in the lunchroom to see him. But Oswald's not out of the clear, because at the time of the shooting, Jarman was on the fifth floor watching the motorcade with Williams and Norman. And as the motorcade drove down Elm Street, Norman claimed he heard three loud shots and said, I could also hear something sounded like shell holes hitting the floor. Above them, he allegedly also heard the sound of a rifle bolt. After the three men ran to the west window, they saw police searching the railroad yards and tried to leave the depository, but were turned back by police. Jarman's story was the same, except he didn't hear any shells hitting the floor, nor did he hear the sound of a rifle bolt. I'm dumbfounded by the conflicting testimony. If we take the men at their word, it still leaves me with the question. If Norman could hear shells hitting the floor and a bolt of a rifle, why didn't anyone hear someone moving above them? Especially since someone supposedly spent time constructing a sniper's nest, with book cartons just a mere minutes after Williams joined the other two on the fifth floor. So was it Oswald on the sixth floor? And if not, then where was he? Witness testimony on Oswald's whereabouts before, during, and after the shooting do not rule out the possibility that Oswald was indeed the man seen in the window and that he fired at least some shots during the assassination. But neither did they positively identify him as the shooter. I think it's possible for us to deconstruct the narrative and piece together the most plausible scenario. Williams testified that he heard Oswald call for an elevator around noon, and the depository janitor, Eddie Piper, told authorities he saw Oswald on the first floor at about noon. The official narrative states that Oswald never left the sixth floor, but he told police he had followed the workers down to the first floor and had eaten lunch in the domino room on the depository's first floor, and even accurately described Norman and Jarman who had come through the domino room. This presents a significant question that could have been asked by any competent defense lawyer if Oswald had ever gotten a fair trial. If Oswald was not in the first floor domino room as he said, how could he have noted the presence of two men and accurately described them? Sure, he was familiar with these men from the sixth floor, but how would he know when the men would walk through the domino room, or more accurately, how would he know where these men would be at that time if he was up on the sixth floor another witness Carolyn Arnold, secretary to the depository's vice president, was quoted in an FBI report saying she thought she caught a fleeting glimpse of Lee Harvey Oswald standing in the first floor hallway as she left the building to watch the motorcade at about 1220 p.m however, in 1978 Arnold told the Dallas Morning News she saw not a fleeting glimpse, but saw and recognized Oswald in the lunchroom as she was leaving the building to watch the motorcade at 12.25 p.m. 12.20 is the time that Williams claims he finished his lunch and went to the fifth floor. If 12.25 is the time when Arnold saw Oswald as she was leaving to watch the motorcade, then 12.20 and 12.25 is a pretty tight time frame. Arnold continued to challenge the phrase fleeting glimpse, which the FBI report attributed to her. She stated, That is completely foreign to me. It would have forced me to have been turning back around to the building when, in fact, I was trying to watch the parade. Why would I be looking back inside the building? That doesn't make any sense to me. And this completely contradicts the Warren Commission's claim that no depository employee saw Oswald after 11.55 a.m. Arnold stated, I do not recall that he, Oswald, was doing anything. I just recall that he was sitting there in one of the booth seats on the right hand side of the room as you go in. He was alone as usual and appeared to be having lunch. I did not speak to him, but I recognized him clearly. Arnold said she knew Oswald because he would come to her desk on the second floor asking for change, and he never accepted pennies, but only nickels and dimes. Carolyn Arnold's information in the interview is the only testimony we have of someone who saw Oswald downstairs in the depository at a time when other witnesses were reporting a man or two men in an upper floor window of the building. If Arnold's statements are correct and Oswald was in the downstairs lunchroom at 1225, then it lessens the likelihood that Oswald was the assassin While it's still possible that Oswald could have raced upstairs in time to be in the sniper's window by 12.30 p.m., recall that newlyweds Arnold and Barbara Rowland saw two men in the sixth floor window, one with a rifle, at 12.15. This time can be fixed with confidence because Arnold Rowland reported seeing the man with the gun just as a nearby police radio announced that the presidential motorcade was approaching Cedar Springs Road. Police dispatchers' records showed that the motorcade passed Cedar Springs between 12.15 and 12.16 p.m. The Warren Commission concluded that Oswald stayed on the 6th floor after the other 6th floor employees left in the elevators at about 11.55 a.m. and remained there to commit the assassination. And looking at her timeline, events fall into place as follows. Approximately between 11.55 and 12.00, Employees left the 6th floor for lunch. Oswald, running slightly behind the crowd, was heard requesting the elevators be sent back up. Around the time of 12, the janitor, Eddie Piper, claims to have seen Oswald on the 1st floor. Then, Williams quickly grabs his lunch, makes his way back up to the 6th floor, where he remained until approximately 12.20, claiming Oswald, nor anyone else, was up there with him. But... Arnold and Barbara Rowland saw two men in the 6th floor window, one with a rifle, at 12.15, which is corroborated with the police dispatch records, as stated earlier. So, if Williams was on the 6th floor until 12.20, but men were seen in the window at 12.15, 12.16, which one is true? I tend to lean toward the 12.15 time frame, because it has a level of corroboration, and Williams stated he approximately left the 6th floor at 12.20. Around 12.25, Carolyn Arnold was heading outside to watch the motorcade and was adamant that she saw Oswald in the domino room. Five minutes later, shots were fired and Kennedy was murdered. That still leaves Oswald those five minutes to get back up to the 6th floor, commit the murder, and get back down. But hopefully now you have a picture in your mind and you can visualize that there is some credible evidence that Oswald was exactly where he said he was, in the domino room at the time of the shooting. Now, if you remember a few episodes ago, I briefly touched upon patrolman Marion Baker and when he ran into Oswald on the depository's second floor shortly after shots were fired. After hearing gunshots, Baker turned his attention to the depository seeing birds dispersing from the roof, and he believed the depository was the location of the assassin, so he immediately rushed toward the building. In a later reenactment for the Warren Commission, it took Baker only 15 seconds to park his cycle and race up the front steps of the depository. Baker told the Warren Commission, I had it in mind that the shots came from the top of this building. He continued... As I entered this lobby, there were people going in as I entered, and I asked where the stairs or elevator was, and this man, Mr. Truly, spoke up and says to me, I'm the building manager. Follow me, officer. I will show you. During another reenactment, Baker reached the second-floor lunchroom from the street outside within a minute and 15 seconds after the last shot. Few are confused by the second-floor lunchroom being mentioned, and not the first floor domino room? This is because when Baker ran into Oswald, he was on the second floor near the Coke machine. If you remember, Oswald was there with the Coke in his hand. This becomes a new time constraint. Would it have been possible for Oswald to have fired the shots from the sixth floor window and appear on the second floor in time to meet Baker and Truly in less than a minute and a half after the last shot? If not, then this rules out Oswald as the shooter in the window. In addition to reenacting his entry into the building after the shots were fired, Officer Baker testified that he and the Commission Counsel, David Beelan, ran two time trials of Oswald's presumed escape route from the 6th floor window to the 2nd floor. They timed it as a minute 18 seconds on the first run and a minute 14 seconds on the second run. The FBI also conducted tests to see how long it would take to descend from the 6th floor window to the 1st floor exit. The time required to reach the 2nd floor lunchroom, where the Coke machine was located, would have been a little less than the FBI reenactment times. But judging by the floor plans, the difference could not have been more than 10 or 15 seconds if that, adjusting for the additional distance from the lunchroom to the 1st floor exit. The fastest time clocked by the FBI to the front door was 1 minute, 45 seconds. The route presumed to have been taken by Oswald consisted of walking from the window on the 6th floor to the stairway, walking down the stairway to the 1st floor, and walking from the stairway to the front door. Now on auroraborisinc.com you'll be able to find floor plans for the depository. I highly recommend you go check them out, look at them, Get a feel for how everything was placed, where they were at, where the elevators were, where the stairs were. That will also help you get an idea of all these reenactments. Now, this is the only route that could be consistent with Oswald meeting Baker and Truly on the second floor within 1 minute and 30 seconds of the final shot. Provided that we subtract the 15 seconds from the FBA timing for the portion of the route between the lunchroom and the front door. This exceeds both of Baker's reenactment times for the same route. The FBI trials were done at a fast walk except in areas where an individual would have walked at a normal pace so as not to arouse suspicion. If Baker was in the lunchroom within a minute 15 of the last shot and if it would have taken Oswald a minute 30 seconds to get to the lunchroom from the 6th floor window then Oswald could not have been shooting at the president from the window and still have met Baker and Truly on the second floor. This would mean Oswald must have been downstairs the whole time, just as he said. If we allow for some imprecision in the timings, the best that can be said for the commission's theory is that it might have been barely possible for Oswald to have done the shooting and then arrive on the second floor when Baker entered the lunchroom. You should note, that these reenactment times do not include time for hiding the rifle, nor for possibly wiping fingerprints off the rifle, or for buying the Coca-Cola that Oswald was seen with on the second floor. It cannot be determined from testimony whether Oswald had already bought the Coke before the shooting, or whether he bought it moments before meeting Officer Baker. But he definitely had the Coke in his hand at the time Baker saw him. And he described Oswald as calm and collected and not out of breath. Whenever he bought the coke, Oswald did not give the appearance of someone who had just committed a sensational murder and then hurried down four flights of stairs. And remember, although Harold Norman, at the fifth floor window, reported hearing shells being ejected above him, neither Norman, nor his companions, Bonnie Ray Williams and James Jarman, reported hearing the footsteps of someone walking across the sixth floor from the sniper's nest to the stairway at the opposite corner of the building. Where Oswald went after the assassination and what he was up to is almost as convoluted as the time during the assassination. The Warren Commission claimed to have pieced together Oswald's movements from the time he allegedly left the depository at 12.33 p.m. as follows. He leisurely exits the depository, walking seven blocks on Elm Street, takes a bus ride back toward the area he had just left, then walks several more blocks, hops in a taxi, and again walks until he reaches his apartment, where he spent three or four minutes, after which he takes off again to pause at a bus stop for an unspecified length of time, then walking almost a mile to the intersection of East 10th Street and Patton Avenue, where at last the confrontation with and the murder of Officer Tippett happened. Of all the facets regarding the Kennedy assassination, the shooting of Dallas policeman Jefferson Davis Tippett has received less attention than most others. The official narrative states that Tippett was shot while attempting to arrest Lee Harvey Oswald 45 minutes after the assassination in Dallas. The death of this police officer is what allegedly led to Oswald's arrest, and by most accounts, is the foundation laid for accusations against Oswald. Warren Commission Attorney David Beelan called the shooting the Rosetta Stone to the JFK assassination. After all, stated the conventional wisdom at the time, Oswald killed that policeman? Why would he do that if he hadn't killed the president? Little is known about Tippett or his life and personal contacts. This absence of information prompted researcher Sylvia Meager to write, Tippett, the policeman and the man, is a one-dimensional and insubstantial figure, unknown and unknowable. The commission was not interested in Tippett's life, and apparently interested in his death only to the extent that it could be ascribed to Oswald, despite massive defects in the evidence against him. One of the many blaring omissions by the commission is that Tippett's death occurred only two blocks from Jack Ruby's home on Marsala Street. If not familiar with Ruby, he's the man who shot Oswald dead. I'll talk more about him in a later episode. The Warren Commission concluded that Oswald was the one to kill Tippett, yet there was no real knowledge of Tippett's background or any of his associations, nor were they looked into. Failure to look closely and to tippit the man would carry on to the evidence, and as such, problems arose. Oswald's guilt was based on four primary pieces of evidence: one, two witnesses who allegedly saw the shooting, and seven who saw a man fleeing, positively identified Lee Harvey Oswald as the man they saw fire the shots or flee from the scene. Two, the cartridge cases found near the Tippet slaying were fired from the revolver in the possession of Oswald at the time of his arrest, to the exclusion of all other weapons, claimed the Warren Commission. 3. The Warren Commission determined that the revolver in Oswald's possession at the time of his arrest was purchased by and belonged to him. 4. According to the Warren Commission, Oswald's jacket was found along the path of flight taken by Tippett's killer. For the purpose of this episode, I'm only going to cover the witnesses. The three remaining evidential pieces will be expounded upon in a later episode. The chief witness for the Warren Commission was Helen Markham, whose credibility, even at the time of the commission, was in question. And I have serious doubts whether she would have been called as a witness had Oswald received a trial. In Markham's testimony, she claimed to have witnessed the murder and went so far as to say that she talked with Tippett as he lay dying. But, medical authorities claimed he died instantly. This isn't the only contradiction in Markham's testimony. She claimed to have seen the killer talk to Tippett through the patrol car's right-hand window, but pictures of the crime scene show the window to be rolled up. While giving testimony before the Warren Commission, Markham stated six times She did not recognize anyone in the police lineup that evening. That is, until commission attorney Joseph Ball prompted, Was there a number two man in there? Markham would respond, Number two is the one I picked. When I saw this man I wasn't sure, but I had cold chills just run all over me. Markham's account becomes more stunning after other witnesses at the scene, William Scoggins, Ted Calloway, and Emory Austin claimed they never saw Markham in the minutes immediately following the shooting. This leaves the question, is Helen Markham a true witness, or was she a pawn for authorities? Cab driver Scoggins also identified Oswald that day, but admitted he did not actually witness the shooting, and his extent as a witness only went so far as seeing the killer fleeing, and his view was obscured because he ducked down behind his cab as the man came by. Scoggins and another cab driver, William Whaley, a guy who allegedly drove Oswald home that day, both viewed a Dallas police lineup composed of five young teenagers and Oswald. Whaley told the Warren Commission, You could have picked Oswald out without identifying him by just listening to him because he was bawling out the policemen, telling them it wasn't right to put him in line with these teenagers. He showed no respect for the policemen. He told them what he thought about them. They were trying to railroad him, and he wanted his lawyer. Anybody who wasn't sure could have picked out the right one just for that. There's another fact I want to mention, and it is one that should give you pause. Oswald stated during the lineup, he was asked his name and his place of employment. This is critical. I consider this a line of inquiry that's leading, meaning... It tells the witnesses to point the finger at Oswald. You have to consider that by Friday evening, everyone in Dallas who attended the police lineups had heard that shots were fired from the Texas School Book Depository, the very place Oswald was forced to admit he worked. Scoggins would be brought back the next day to identify Oswald again, although in his Warren Commission testimony, he admitted seeing Oswald's photograph In a morning paper before viewing the police lineup. The identification process gets crazier when Scoggins admitted to the commission that after the lineup, an FBI or Secret Service agent showed him several pictures of men, which Scoggins narrowed down to two. Scoggins recalled, I told them one of these two pictures is him, and then he told me the other one was Oswald. By now, it's clear that these are all horrible star witnesses, and the evidence was marred by a tainted process. Arguably, the better witnesses, including Domingo Benavides, the person closest to the killing, were never asked to view a lineup, nor were they ever able to identify Oswald as the killer. Several other witnesses, including Aquila Clemens, claimed two men were involved in the Tippett shooting. She would ultimately be ignored by the federal authorities. Clemens claimed she was threatened into silence by a man with a gun and was never questioned. The Warren Commission denied knowledge of Clemens, stating, The only woman among the witnesses to the slaying of Tippett known to the commission is Helen Markham. As I stated earlier, Markham's testimony was all over the place, and I'll offer you one more example. In her first statement, She said the killer was short and stocky, with bushy hair, Matching the description given by Aquila Clemens, who in a filmed interview said the killer was quote, kind of a short guy, kind of heavy. Markham would go on to later deny giving this description. If all of this seems strange, then the story of Warren Reynolds takes things up a notch. He witnessed the shooting and actually chased the killer, but he failed to catch him. When asked to identify the killer, he failed to point the guilty finger at Oswald. That is, until after he was shot in the head two months later. Thankfully, he would recover and that is when he identified Oswald to the Warren Commission. Staying on the topic of strange, another suspect was also arrested for the shooting but was released when a former stripper named Betty Mooney McDonald provided an alibi. And one week later, McDonald was arrested by Dallas police and found a few hours later hanging in her jail cell. Neither the FBI nor the Warren Commission investigated this strange incident. Regardless of who actually killed Officer Tippett, his death became the catalyst that set off a flurry of police activity in Oak Cliff, which resulted in the arrest of Lee Harvey Oswald, and in less than 48 hours later, his death. Next time on Conspiracy JFK. The FBI assert control over the case. Jack Ruby murders Oswald, and we review the evidence against Oswald, which leads us right back to the Majestic 12. Connections are beginning to surface, and if you think you've heard everything and every theory about the JFK assassination, you'll be astonished at what comes next. What will you believe? (laughs)